0: Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where today we're going to be talking about Suleiman the Magnificent one of the most um, renowned king-sultans of the Ottoman Empire, and also known in a more joking fashion to some as the man with an onion hat. As in his official portrait, one of his most famous official portraits, the hat he's wearing is this giant white one, which does in a way resemble an onion. So you can look that up if you're curious, but in my personal opinion, it does in a way very much closely resemble an onion. So let's really get to the heart of, I guess, why Suleiman was the Magnificent, why he was the last... So-called great king, great sultan of the Ottoman Empire, at least according to those who believed in the Ottoman decline thesis. So Suleiman was born in Trabzon along the east coast of the Black Sea to his father Selim I. Probably on the 6th of November, uh, 1494. The date's actually not known, but this is the one that most people can agree to, so we're going to roll with that as being his actual birthday. He was the son of, his mother was, Hasfa Sultan, a convert to Islam of unknown origins who would die in 1534. At the age of seven, Suleiman was sent to study science, history, literature, theology, and military tactics, in the schools of the Imperial Topaki Palace in Constantinople. This is where many Turkish nobles at the time, and along with a number of Janissaries, went in order to receive their education and their training. Um, And this was especially important for the Ottoman sultans, especially the military training, as for many Ottoman sultans, much of their reign has been defined by their military campaigns, and Suleiman is no exception to that rule. As a young man, Suleiman was well educated, he made a lot of friends, and he would seem to and these many of these friends would come to be his trust, most trusted advisors. However, a number of them would actually come to be executed by Suleiman under his orders after they were possibly revealed to be traitors and whatnot. But that's the way that, you know, most things honestly worked for kings and courts and read and news and whatnot back in the day. There was a lot of that kind of scheming and intrigue, especially in the Ottoman Empire. And from the age of seventeen he was also appointed as the governor of the first cov, Theodosia, then Manesia, with a brief tenure at Edirne. His father died, however, in 1520, upon which Suleiman would take the throne in Constantinople as the 10th Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. At the time, a few weeks following his ascension, the Venetian envoy, Bartolomeo Contriani, described the Sultan as 25 years old, however, he was actually 26. Tall, slender, but tough, with a thin, bony face, facial hair evident but only barely, the Sultan appears friendly and Good humor. And the rumor has it that Suleiman is aptly named, enjoys reading, is knowledgeable, and shows good judgment. Quote. And this is the description of him by the Venetian envoy in Constantinople at the time. Now, as the Venetian envoy pointed out, Suleiman was supposedly aptly named. Suleiman means "man of peace," but as we're about to find out, the early tenure of Suleiman's reign was not marked by peace, but that of war and military conquest, as has the reign of many very different sultans. Upon succeeding his father to the throne, Suleiman began a series of military conquests that eventually leading to the suppression of a revolt led by then Ottoman general the Ottoman appointed general of Damascus in 1521. Suleiman then made preparations for the conquest of Belgrade from the Kingdom of Hungary, something his father Mehmed II, as we talked about in one of our previous episodes, failed to achieve due to John Hunyadi's defense on the region. This capture was vital for the Ottomans in order to remove the Hungarians and Croatians from the region, as they were the only formidable force who could block Ottoman gains in Europe. Suleiman would encircle Belgrade, and with a series of heavy bombardments from an island in the Danube, Belgrade at the time, with a garrison of only 700 men, which also received no aid from Hungary, would fall in August of 1521. The fall of Christendom's major strongholds to Suleiman the Magnificent spread a lot of fear across Central Europe, and the ambassador to the Holy Roman Emperor in Constantin- Constantinople, was to note, quote, the capture of Belgrade was at the origin of the dramatic events which engulfed Hungary. It led to the death of King Louis, the capture of Buda, the occupation of Transylvania, the ruin of a flourishing kingdom, and the fear of neighboring nations that they would suffer the same fate, end quote. The road to Hungary and Austria after capturing Belgrade basically lay open for Suleiman the Magnificent, but Suleiman instead turned his, his attention towards the eastern Mediterranean island of Rhodes, the home base of the Knights Hospitaller. In the summer of 1522, taking advantage of a large navy inherited from his father, Suleiman dispatched an armada of roughly 400 ships towards Rhodes, while personally leading an army of 180,000 across Asia Minor to a point opposite the island itself. Here, Suleiman would establish the Marimis Castle that served as a base for the Ottoman navy in the years to come. Following a five-month siege, Rhodes would finally capitulate, but Suleiman would allow the Knights of Rhodes to depart. The conquest of the island cost the Ottomans 50 to 60,000 dead from battle and sickness, but the, some Christian claims went as high as 64,000 Ottoman battle death and 50,000 deceased death, which is possibly more likely given that usually the parties who initially report the results, especially in these days, are a bit more um, partial to themselves and give themselves less casualties to make it seem like more of a decisive victory. But at the same time, these were the Knights Hospitaller, and being adamantly anti-Ottoman it's possible that they simply made up the lie themselves in order to you know appear as they gave a more valiant defense or whatnot but regardless of whatever side actually has the correct information it costs a lot of lives nonetheless to siege down this small but strategically important island. As relations between Hungary and the Ottoman Empire continued to deteriorate following the fall of Belgrade, Suleiman would resume his campaign in Central Europe on the 29th of August, 1526, where he defeated Louis II of Hungary at the Battle of Mohawks. In its wake, Hungarian resistance pretty much all but collapsed, and the Ottoman Empire became the preeminent power in Central Europe. Upon encountering the lifeless body of King Louis, who died in battle, Suleiman is said to have lamented, I came indeed in arms against him, but it was not my wish that he should have thus cut off before he... Scarcely tasted the sweets of life and royalty. While Slimon was also campaigning in Hungary, Turkmen tribes in central Anatolia revolted under the leadership of Kalendar Celebi. Due to the Hungarian defeat and the death of King Louis II, some Hungarian nobles proposed that Ferdinand, the ruler of Austria, and tied to Louis II's family by marriage, become King of Hungary, and in doing so join against the Ottoman Empire in their defense. And this was cited using previous agreements that the Habsburgs would take the Hungarian throne if Louis was to die without heirs. However, other nobles turned to the nobleman Ion Sapoya, who was being supported by Suleiman at the time. Under Charles V and his brother Ferdinand I, the Habsburgs would reoccupy Buda and take possession of Hungary. Reacting in 1529, Suleiman in turn would march through the valley of the Danube and regain control of Buda in the following autumn, where his forces would then lay siege to the Vienna. This was to be probably one of the Ottoman Empire's most ambitious expeditions, and really the centerpiece and main showing of its drive to really expand into the West. With a reinforced garrison of 16,000 men, however, the Austrians inflicted the first defeat on Suleiman, sowing the seeds of a bitter o- Ottoman Habsburg rivalry that would last until the 20th century. His second attempt to conquer Vienna in 1532 would also fail, as Ottoman forces were delayed by the Siege of Gunz and failed to reach Vienna. In both cases, the Ottoman army was plagued by bad weather, forcing them to leave behind essential siege equipment, and was hobbled by overstretched supply lines, given how far these cities were from the main Ottoman supply points in Anatolia and the Balkans. By 1540s, a renewal of the conflict in Hungary presented Suleiman with the opportunity to avenge the defeat suffered at Vienna. In 1541, the Habsburgs attempted to lay siege to boot above were repulsed, and more Habsburg fortresses were captured by the Ottomans in two campaigns in 1541 and 1544. Ferdinand and Charles were forced to eventually conclude a humiliating five-year treaty with Suleiman in which Ferdinand renounced his claim to the Kingdom of Hungary and was forced to pay a fixed yearly sum to the Sultan for the Hungarian lands he continued to control. A more symbolic importance, the treaty transferred King, tra- referred to King Charles V not as emperor but as the King of Spain, leading Suleiman to identify himself as the true Caesar, something which the Ottomans have been trying to do since, as we saw in Mehmed II, where he captured Constantinople, and in doing so, tried to style himself as the third Rome.
0: For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos, the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present.
1: For all of you just tuning back in, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We just got into talking about Suleiman the Magnificent's military campaigns in Europe, and now we're about to get into his military campaigns in, in the Middle East. So as Suleiman was stabilizing his European fronts, he now had time to turn his attention to the ever-present threat posed by the Shia Safavid dynasty of Persia. Two events in particular were to precipitate a recurrence of tensions between the two. First, Shah Tamshah had the Baghdad governor loyal to Suleiman killed and replaced with an adherent of the Shah. And second, the governor of Batilis had defected and sworn allegiance to the Safavids. As a result, in 1533, Suleiman would order his grand vizier, Pagali Ibrahim Pasha, to lead an army into Eastern Asia Minor where he retook Biltis and occupied Tabriz without much resistance from the Persians. Having joined Ibrahim in 1534, Suleiman himself made a push towards Persia, only to find the Shah sacrificing territory instead of fighting, facing a pitched battle, resorting instead to a more guerrilla warfare tactic of harassment of, of the Ottoman army as it proceeded along the harsh interior, something which the Ottoman, Empire, Ottoman army had shown to be vulnerable to, as this was mainly a tactic used uh, uh, by the Eastern European powers against them, primarily with Skanderbeg. In the following year, Suleiman made a grand entrance in the Baghdad, where he greatly enhanced his prestige by restoring the tomb of Abu Hanifa, the founder of the Hanifa School of Islamic Law, to which the Ottomans at the time adhered. Attempting to defeat the Shah once and for all, Suleiman embarked upon a second campaign in 1548-1549. In the previous attempt, Tasha attempted to avoid confrontation with the Ottoman army, and instead chose to retreat, using more scorched-earth tactics in the process and exposing the Ottoman army to the harsh winter of the Caucasus. This would force Suleiman to abandon the campaign. But with the Ottomans g- gaining temporary gains in Tabriz and the Urmia region, a lasting presence in the province of Van, and control of the western half of Azerbaijan and then some forts in Georgia. In 1533, Suleiman would begin his third and final campaign against the Shah, having initially lost territories in Erzurum to the Shah's son. Suleiman retaliated by capturing Erzurum crossing the upper Euphrates and laying waste to parts of Persia. The Shah's army continued again the strategy of avoiding the Ottomans, leading to a stalemate from which neither army made any significant gain. In 1544, a settlement between the two parties was signed, in which Suleiman would conclude his campaign. Part of the treaty included and confirmed the return of Tabriz, but secured Baghdad and the lower Mesopotamia, the mouths of the rivers Euphrates and Tigris, as well as parts of the Persian Gulf for the Ottoman Empire. Next, Suleiman would find himself doing something that you, the Ottoman Empire really hadn't done before, find itself in conflicts engaged overseas, primarily in the Indian Ocean. The Ottoman ships at this time had been sailing in the Indian Ocean since around 1518, where Ottoman admirals such as Hadim Suleiman Pasha, Sa'il Ali Rais, and Kurtoglu Hazir Rais are known to have voyaged to the Mughal imperial ports of Tata, Surat, and Janjira. The Mughal emperor, Akbar the Great, is known to have exchanged at least six documents with Suleiman the Magnificent magnificent, showing that ties were established and the Ottomans were actually able to exert in some capacity diplomatic presences overseas. And Suleiman led several naval campaigns against the Portuguese during this time, in an attempt to remove them and re-establish trade with the Mughal Empire, as the Portuguese at this time held numerous ports throughout the Arabian Peninsula, Eastern Africa, and even India itself, which really gave them a monopoly on trade that Suleiman attempted to usurp. In order to seize this trade, Aden in Yemen was captured by the Ottomans in 1538 in order to provide the Ottomans for a base for raids against Portuguese possessions on the western coast of the Mughal Empire. Sailing on from here, the Ottomans failed against the Portuguese, however, at the Siege of Diu in 1538, but then returned to Aden where they fortified the city. From this base, Suleiman Pasha managed to take control of the whole country of Yemen, also taking Sana'a. With its strong control of the Red Sea, Suleiman managed to dispute control of the trade routes to the Portuguese and maintain a significant level of trade with the Mughal Empire throughout the 16th century. From 1526 till roughly 1543, Suleiman stationed over 900 Turkish soldiers to fight alongside the Somali Adal Sultanate during the conquest of Abyssinia. After the 1st Ajuran Adjuran-Portuguese War, the Ottoman Empire would, in 1539, absorb the weakened Adal Sultanate into its own domain. This expansion fa- fathered Ottoman rule in Somalia and the Horn of Africa, and it also increased its influence in the Indian Ocean to compete with the Portuguese Empire, who had its close ally in the Ajuran Empire. In 1564, Suleiman received an embassy from Aqsa requesting Ottoman support against the Portuguese. As a result, the Ottomans would ab- oblige and launch an expedition in order to save them, and it was able to provide extensive military support to the Akanese. The discovery of several new maritime trade routes as well by the European states allowed them to avoid the Ottoman trade monopoly that Suleiman had established. The Portuguese discovered the Cape of Good Hope in 1488 and initiated a series of Ottoman Portuguese naval wars in the ocean throughout the 16th century. The adjouned Sultan had allied with the Ottomans, and defied the Portuguese economic monopoly in the Indian Ocean by employing a new coinage which followed the Ottoman pattern, thus proclaiming an attitude of economic dependence in regards to the Portuguese, thus continuing the trade war that would continue to persist on for a decent amount of time between the Ottomans and the Portuguese. Having consolidated not only the Indian Ocean but various portions of Europe and the Middle East, he would turn his eyes to the Mediterranean and North Africa. Having consolidated these lands, Suleiman was greeted with news that the fortress of Cardone and Morea had been lost to Charles V's Admiral Andrea Doria during his conflict with the Austrians. The presence of the Spanish in the eastern Mediterranean concerned Suleiman, who saw it as an early indication of Charles V's intention to rival Ottoman dominance in the region. Recognizing the need to reassert Naval preeminence in the Mediterranean, Suleiman appointed an exceptional Ottoman naval commander in the form of Karid ad-Din, known to the Europeans as Barbarossa. Once appointed the admiral-in-chief of the Ottoman navy, Barbarossa was charged with rebuilding the Ottoman fleet, which... And, and he did so to an extent that the Ottoman navy equaled the number of those of all other Mediterranean countries combined. In 1535, Charles V led a holy league of 27,000 soldiers to victory against the Ottomans of Tunis, which, together with his war against Venice the following year, led Suleiman to accept proposals from Francis I of France to actually form an alliance against Charles V. Huge Muslim territories as a, as a result of this and his war— were annexed by him in North Africa. The Barbary states of Tripolitania, Tunisia, and Algeria became autonomous provinces of the empire, serving as the leading edge of Suleiman's conflict with Charles V, whose attempt to drive out the Turks failed in 1541. And piracy carried on thereafter by the Barbary states of North Africa and can be seen in the context of various wars against Spain. It was this Barbary trade that was really also responsible and was the main force that hassled and harassed European trade. And it would even be the same justification that was used over a century later by the French when they invaded Algeria, under which they cited that the Beylik of Algeria was responsible partly for uh, various raids with the Barbary pirates against French shipping. To further assert his dominance, Suleiman would go on to invade Malta in 1565, and many feared that this would end up to be another road situation. However, due to Spanish reinforcements, Malta, while many of Malta, uh, Malta cities were destroyed and half the knights of the island were killed in battle, the relief force from the Spanish were able to cause 10,000 casualties to the Ottomans and pull out a victory for the Maltese people. Through these various conflicts, Suleiman was able, in a sense, to gain more control of the Mediterranean. He never defeated decisively any naval fleet belonging to the other powers. But through the conquest of much of North Africa and the Barbary pirates, he was really able to hassle... Western trade, and also establish a relatively firm presence with a lot of friendly ports from which his own fleet could extend their range and resupply, while the Western powers weren't really able to do that given the lack of friendly ports to them, and the ports they had to use belonged to other nations of whom they had to negotiate with access to
0: those ports. If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.
1: Welcome back for all of you just tuning in to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We just got done talking about all of the military campaigns of Suleiman. And now we're going to get into his legal and political reforms. So while Suleiman is known to many as the Magnificent, he was also known as Suleiman the Lawgiver to his own Ottoman subjects. The overriding law of the empire at the time was Sharia, or sacred law, which was the divine law of Islam, and was outside of the Sultan's power to change. Yet an area of distinct law known as the Kununs was dependent on Suleiman's will alone, covering areas such as criminal law, land tenure and taxation he collected all of the judgments that had been issued by the nine ottoman sultans who preceded him and after eliminating duplications and choosing between contradictory statements he issued a single legal code all the while being careful not to violate the basic laws of islam it was within this framework that suleiman supported by Grand mufti ezbun sought to re- reform the legislation to adapt to a rapidly changing empire when the Kanun laws attained their final form the code of laws became known as the e osmani or the Ottoman laws, and Suleiman's legal code would last more than 300 years in the Ottoman Empire. Suleiman gave particular attention to the point of rayas, Christian subjects who worked the land of the Sefas. His Kanun raya, or the code of the rayas, reformed the law governing levies and taxes to be paid by the rayas, raising their status above serfdom to the extent that Christian serfs would migrate to Turkish territories to benefit from the reforms. The sultan also played a role in protecting Jewish subjects of the empire for centuries to come. In late 1553 to 54, on the suggestion of his favorite doctor and dentist, the Spanish Jew Moses Hamon, the Sultan issued a firm, informally denouncing blood libels against Jewish, against the Jews. Furthermore, Suleiman enacted new criminal and police legislation, prescribing a set of fines for specific offenses, as well as reducing the instances requiring death or mutilation. In the area of taxation, taxes were levied on various goods and produce, including animals, mines, profits of trade, and even import-export duties. Education was another area for the sultan that he really focused on. Schools attached to mosques and funded by religious foundations provided a largely free education to the Muslim boys in advance, of the, in advance of the Christian countries of the time. In Constantinople, Suleiman increased the number of mechites to 14, teaching boys to read and write as well as the principles of Islam. Young men wishing further education could proceed to one of the eight medrisis whose studies included grammar, metaphysics, f- philosophy, astronomy, and astrology. Higher madrasas provided education that were near university status and whose graduates would come on to become teachers. Educational centers were often one of the many buildings surrounding the courtyards of mosques, others being that of libraries, baths, soup, kitchens, residence, hospitals, and all to the benefit of the public. So through the creation of this law code and through the expansion of education, Suleiman was really able to lift up, in a sense, the literacy levels of his people and was really able, in a way, to help develop the Ottoman Empire as a whole. Suleiman himself was also a large patron of the arts. Himself actually being a poet under the name Takhalis. a number of Suleiman's verses have become well-known Turkish proverbs, such as the such as the uh, verse: "Everyone aims at the same meaning, but many are the." are the versions of the story. And his most famous verse is probably, the people think of wealth and power as the greatest fate, but in this world, a spell of health is the best state. What men call sovereignty is a worldly strife and constant war. Worship of God is the highest throne and the happiest of all estates. So while Suleiman himself was a poet, he also sponsored various artists, poets, uh, writers, to re- and really helped the arts and culture of the Ottoman Empire at the time flourish. However, as with all kings and sultans even, the everyone is mortal. And on the 6th of September, 1566, Suleiman, who had set out from Constantinople to command another expedition to Hungary, died before an Ottoman victory at the Battle of Szigetvár in Hungary. And this was actually kept secret during the retreat for the enthronement of his son, Selim II. The legacy of Suleiman is truly a magnificent one. He's described as the last great king of the Ottoman Empire, from which the Ottoman Empire declined by those who believe in the Ottoman Decline thesis, although that thesis has been debunked by modern historian scholars. And Suleiman really brought the Ottoman Empire to the apex of its power. It was a cultural, economic, and military powerhouse, as it had vast territories in most most of Eastern Europe, north africa and even the middle east thank you for joining us for another week of history shouldn't be a mystery join us next time as we delve into yet another historical figure from our past
0: and that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs there's many more historical figures from our past to discuss so be sure to join us same time same place next week for a new edition of history shouldn't be a mystery with your host connor bolanos